The following audio is from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com. I'd like to talk to you today about the reality that Jesus is something more. Many of you here believe in Jesus uh, as God and as Savior of the world. But whether you do or not this Christmas season, you have to acknowledge that there's something different about Jesus. He was not a typical man, and the mark that he's left on the world is not uh, a typical life. And this month, we're going to be looking every Sunday at a way that Jesus is something more, uh, more than a baby in a manger, more than a, a kind of a, a genie who grants you wishes, more than a benevolent Santa Claus figure in the sky who kind of comes and helps you out and you call out to him when you have a problem. He's more than all that. He's, he's something more. And every week we're going to look at a, a different way that Jesus is something more. Uh, next week we're going to see that he's more than expected. Uh, and it's a message I'm really looking forward to because all of us have ways that God has not met our expectations. We probably wouldn't say that. But we all have ways where here's how we expected God to work and, and here's what has happened. And, and what God has done, it's, it wasn't as fast as we thought or the, the, the justice that we're after. We haven't gotten that justice. And our expectations for how God should work and how he has worked, they haven't met up. And we're going to see next week that he's more than we expect. And very often those times when we feel let down or we feel like he's not moving fast enough or big enough, he does have a bigger and better plan. We're going to see next week that he's more than expected. Today, we see that he's more human. More human. Uh, you, you probably know, if, if you've been around churches, the, the gist of this Christmas story, that God himself came down among us and took upon him the form of a human being. You know about uh, the manger that he was born in. You know about Mary and Joseph. You know about the shepherds and the wise men and the angels. You know maybe about King Herod who set out to kill him because he was threatened by him. Uh, maybe you even know that uh, a lot of the religious leaders at the time, the people who were supposed to be looking for a Messiah, they totally missed him because he wasn't what they expected. But today we see not only it was Jesus God, but he was human and more human than we often realize. If you want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 today. Could you imagine if people still celebrated your birthday after you left the earth? Uh, you'd have to live a pretty remarkable life, right? Because um, we'll have uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. Day. We'll have, we'll have these days where we remember a person's life or a great speech they gave, or a great moment in their life. I mean, of the greatest of historic figures, we'll have those moments. But there, there are not many people that every year we still celebrate their birthday. And, and, and not only that, but it's not just that some people celebrate Jesus' birthday every year through Christmas, but millions. Uh, in fact, millions, hundreds of millions, hundreds of hundreds of millions, uh, probably half the world's population celebrates his birth in one way or another. There have been a lot of significant births in human history, but none so significant as this birth when God himself came down among us in the person of Jesus Christ. God who came, he said, to seek and to save those who are lost. 
I was doing some research about significant births, and I found this from the year 1809. Uh, this researcher says, the international scene was tumultuous. Napoleon was sweeping through Austria. Blood was flowing freely. Nobody at the time really cared about babies, but the world was overlooking some terribly significant births. On the American continent, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Not far away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe began his life. It was also that same year that a physician by the name of Darwin and his wife gave birth to a baby boy who they named Charles Darwin. That same year produced the cries of a newborn infant in a log cabin in Kentucky, infant by the name of Abraham Lincoln. If there had been news broadcasts at the time, these words might have been heard. The destiny of the world is being shaped on the battlefields of Austria. But history was actually being shaped in the cradles of England and America and other countries. Similarly, we we might think today that our futures are being shaped by uh, the stock market or by politicians or uh, by China or Iran, but the reality is that the the course of human history is often shaped through our youngest people, and it was shaped 2,000 years ago in a feeding trough, inches away from the snouts of animals, tucked into a cave where God was born as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. What was the point of that? Why is it that this birth is still celebrated by billions of people? Well, simply put, this birth was unlike any other, and Jesus explained it with this simple claim. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's a simple phrase that we're going to unpack today as we see that Jesus was more human than we may realize. We've heard about the births of Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin, but there's no birth in history that rivals this one, and that's not an overstatement. There's no other birth that 2,000 years later is celebrated on every continent. Uh, In times of war, it's celebrated. During the Great Depression, it was celebrated. In times of peace and prosperity, it's celebrated. Think about this. There's nothing you could do. There's probably nothing we could do collectively if we all decide for the rest of our lives we're going to work together to to, to make some mark on the world so that in the year 4013, 2,000 years from now, everyone will remember us. And once a year they will celebrate. Think about this. Jesus accomplished that before he even said his first word. Right? I mean, just by being born, Jesus accomplished more than 99.9% of humans will ever accomplish in their life just by being born. I mean, the year 4013, could you imagine people once a year all around the world gathering together to celebrate us? We couldn't do it if we wanted to. So, what does this incredible man have to say, and what does he think of us? Well, we see in his statement that he came to seek and to save the lost that Jesus assumes that we're all born lost. 
And until we call out to him for salvation, we walk around, Scripture says, in darkness, spiritually darkened. Scripture says we, are, uh, we don't even realize it, but we're slaves to sin. We think that we're living a life of great freedom, but we have these habits and these ways of treating other people and of thinking that, that actually enslave us. And that's why Jesus came, was to give us a way out of that. Our text today in Luke 19 tells us that Jesus isn't just the Son of God, but he's also the Son of Man. And now it's true and it's really important to understand that Jesus is fully God. And this is one of the great mysteries of Scripture. And, and I hate to break it to you, but if you really want to be serious about the Bible, uh, even if you just want to be serious about seeking God, the Creator, you're going to encounter some, what we call them, theological tensions. They're things that we can't understand. Now, that doesn't mean that our faith is unreasonable or irrational. Uh, a lot of the most brilliant people in history have, have believed our faith, from Isaac Newton to Louis Pasteur, who made pasteurized milk. Uh, bright, logical minds cling to this faith. And yet, if you're going to believe anything supernatural, you come to a place where you kind of tap out the limits of your mind. And this is one of those, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Mathematically, doesn't make a lot of sense, right? But he is 100% God, 100% man. And this is a huge doctrine because uh, most false teachings about Jesus, this is, it's at that core that they veer off one way or another. Uh, for example, uh, a lot of religions and cults will say, yeah, Jesus was fully man. Uh, like Islam would say, Jesus was fully man. He was a prophet. He was not God. Allah is God. Jesus was a prophet. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say the exact same thing. Jehovah's the one true God. Jesus was just essentially a prophet of Jehovah. He's not actually God. Uh, then, in the other camp, you, you get the, the error that comes from saying, yes, Jesus was fully God, but, but he, he's not the one true God, and he's not fully man. That, that's the error of uh, Mormonism. Our, our friends who are uh, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what they believe is that Jesus was a God. Not the one true God, but a God. And if you follow Jesus, if you do enough good, if you work hard enough and jump through enough hoops, you too can become a God and someday have your own planet to rescue and to save and to take care of. Uh, that, that's essentially um, their theology. So uh, they would say he wasn't a man. He, he, was, he was a God. Well, well, true Christian theology, when we, when we read Genesis to Revelation... And when we really take it all seriously, we see, well, he's fully God, 100%, and he's fully man. And he's not just a God, he is the one true God, existing with the Father and the Holy Spirit in, in another theological tension called the Trinity. This one God in three persons, not three gods, but one God in three persons. So Jesus absolutely is fully God and yet we're going to see today that the term he most often used to refer to himself was a very humble term, a term, son of man. 
And we're going to unpack what that means. And as we really realize that this is the creator of the universe who became a son of man, uh, hopefully we'll realize how special Christmas is today for us. So let's look at this story in Luke chapter 19. Here we find Jesus. He's been born in Bethlehem. He's escaped to Egypt. He grows up in Nazareth. And at this point, he has started his public ministry. He's a well-known teacher. Uh, John the Baptist has said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's a lot of people who do understand now that Jesus is not just a great teacher. He is the Messiah. He is God with us, Emmanuel, sent to pay the penalty for our sins. But there are others who, you know, they're not sure. Is, is, is he the Messiah or is he just a really good teacher with really interesting things to say and, and miracles? So here's where we find Jesus in Luke chapter 19. Let's start in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, to understand uh, what that means, a chief tax collector, first of all, let's talk about it through the eyes of the religious people. The religious people at this time had a list of sins, right? And uh, we've talked about this before, that they very conveniently put their own sins at the bottom of the list as the least sinful, right? Um, Pride and greed and arrogance, they were down there not that sinful. But at the top of their list of the most sinful things was prostitute and tax collector. So this is very significant that Jesus uh, is going to reach out to someone that the religious people considered the most sinful, right? And today in, you know, cultural Christianity in our country, there are certain sins that, that many Christians in America would, would, would act like, well, that's more sinful than my jealousy or my greed or my pride. But we don't see that in Scripture, okay? Jesus never talked that way. Jesus said that we are all sinners, and none of us can work our way back to God. It doesn't matter uh, if your sin is lust, if your sin is greed, if your sin is pride. Scripture says we're all sinners. We're all separated from God by our sin. It's like this grand canyon chasm between us. And there's only one way across it, and that's faith in Jesus. Believing that he was God and died on the, on the cross for our sins. And that's why Jesus, he didn't have a list of, well, depending on which sin you struggle with, you're better or worse. He just said, there's a wide way that leads to destruction. Many are on it. There's a narrow way that leads to life. Few find it. Jesus said, there, there's the darkness and the light. He said, you're either a child of Satan or a child of God. Uh, you're either a goat or a sheep, a tare or a wheat. With Jesus, there's just two categories. And the only way you get on Jesus' team is not by doing good or being good. It's by believing. It's by accepting the free gift of salvation that we cannot earn. Well, the religious people at that time didn't understand that. And still today, there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't understand that, who think they're going to get to heaven because their vices were not on the bad list. Kind of like Santa Claus, right? Uh, but Jesus' message is totally different. It's that none of us can save ourselves, but that he died to save all of us. Whoever will believe in him can have everlasting life. And he's going to demonstrate it here, as he does many times in the Gospels, by reaching out to someone that the religious people would have called the most sinful. Because not only was Zacchaeus a chief tax collector, 
but he was very wealthy. Why was he wealthy? Well, because he extorted people. Uh, you know, uh, if you've seen the Godfather movies, you know how the mafia would work. It's like, hey, if you want to do business here, you want to be protected by us, then you got to pay us, right? Well, at this time, when you paid your taxes, you didn't hire an accountant or, you know, go online to irs.gov. You, you went to a, a booth where the tax collector was sitting. And you know who was on each side of him? Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers with, like, blood on their armor type guys, right? Guys you could probably smell from a little ways away. These were grizzled, killing warriors. And the tax went to Rome. And the tax collector was an employee of Rome. So if he adds up your tax and he adds on an extra 5 or 10% for himself, there's not really any recourse. So these tax collectors... Uh, they would add on a little bit for themselves over and over. So it wasn't just the religious people who didn't like them. Everybody didn't like them because they were essentially professional extortioners, right? They would extort everyone who came their way. So that's why Zacchaeus is very wealthy. In other words, this person isn't just theoretically a sinner. This person really is a sinner. This is a person who takes advantage of other people to help himself out. Verse 3 he wants to see Jesus, but he's short, and he couldn't because of the crowd. You can kind of picture, you know, the crowd is lined up like a parade, and Jesus is coming through, and Zacchaeus is jumping up, you know, he's trying to see over the backs of people. And so, second uh, verse 4, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up at him and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Now imagine this. Imagine, um, do you guys know that B.B. King was here last week? On this stage, last night. I told Jamie, our worship leader, that now for the rest of his life, he can say that he shared a stage with B.B. King. But, you know, imagine that some A-lister like that was coming through town in some really prominent parade, and everyone's lined up to see uh, whoever it might be. And you're there, and you can't really see past, so you run ahead, and you find a spot. And then the person gets there, and they stop the car, and they say, David, Julie, you've never seen this person before in your life. And they call you by name and say, I'm coming to stay at your house. This is what happened to Zacchaeus. Verse 6, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Shouldn't he be with righteous people like us? Verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord. And by the way, that word Lord is master. That's, that's, Zacchaeus isn't saying, hi, professor, hi, important person. He's saying, hi, master. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay him back four times the amount. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. We can't camp on it, but you know, what's incredible about verse 8, about Zacchaeus' response, is that it, it, 
It's a demonstration of a heart of true faith. All right, scripture tells us we're not saved by what we do. We're saved by that faith. But, but the faith that saves usually shows itself through actions, one way or another. And here, you know, there's other times when, when people would come to Jesus and he'd say, come follow me. Uh, and they'd say, okay. And he'd say, but you need to sell your stuff or you need to do this or that. And, and there were many times when they'd be like, eh, it's a bit much, Jesus. I, I just can't quite, sorry. Thanks for the offer, right? Here's Zacchaeus. Jesus hasn't even yet said, come follow me. He just says, I want to go stay at your house. Zacchaeus knows at least part of what's wrong in his life. And he has such faith that he just right away says, you know, Jesus, I know I've wronged a lot of people. I, I want to give away my stuff to the poor and I want to pay back the people that I've wronged. That's a, that's a, a great fruit of, a, of the root of a true heart of faith. And then Jesus tells him, essentially, you have salvation now because of this faith. And this faith has made you a son of Abraham. Well, again, to the religious onlookers, oh, man. Yeah, that was very offensive. To call a tax collector? We are the sons of Abraham. Not him. He's bad. We're good, right? But Jesus says, no, because of your faith, which is showing through your actions, you're also a son of Abraham. But it's verse 10 that's really remarkable where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. The Son of Man came to seek people who were lost. Elsewhere, Jesus says uh, a physician doesn't go to healthy people. A physician goes to sick people, right? And, and, and God here is saying to us, I came to save everyone, but the only people who really receive it are those who acknowledge that they're sick or that they're lost, that they need salvation. And here Jesus says, this is why I came to earth, to seek out lost people, to save lost people. And that's everyone on our planet, right? Six or seven billion people now lost apart from Christ. See, 70 years from now, none of us in this room will be on earth. A few of you young guys sneaked in, so maybe I should say like 80. I see a few, a few of you young people who will be here in 70 years. I won't. I will not be 101. 30 years from now, probably half of us will be gone. 10 or 15 years from now, very many of us will be gone you realize Jesus will still be seeking and saving the lost? Think about this. No matter who's in the White House, no matter what nations and empires come and go, Christmas will go on, won't it? Even outside of all the American commercialism of it. It goes on in Russia. It goes on all around the world. There are people who remember Christmas every year. And long after we're gone, people will still be celebrating Christmas, and Christ's kingdom will be marching on. So the question isn't so much what we think of God. Now, for your eternal, where you're going to spend eternity, that is a big question for you. But in the big scheme of things, 
The bigger question is, what does God think of us? The bigger question is, what does God think of you? When we really realize how brief and limited our lives are, Psalm 144 verse 12 puts it this way, man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. I was reading the other day about the death of Joseph Woodland. Uh, Joseph Woodland was the inventor of the barcode, something that we all use pretty much every day, right? Whenever you shop somewhere. In fact, nowadays, even uh, if you have a a, a newer car, uh, you'll find underneath your car on different parts barcodes because the, the robots at the factory, they scan that part and they know which way to send it because of the barcode. That's a pretty big accomplishment in, right, in life, right? I mean, think about it. Joseph Woodland, could, he could walk into a store and there thousands of examples of his handiwork, his accomplishment. That's a pretty big accomplishment, you know, as far as actually affecting people's lives, you know, probably bigger than a lot of us will contribute, at least on the human level, right? Well, it was a big deal, but now he's gone, passed away recently. And I don't know of anyone who's planning next year to celebrate Joseph Woodland's birthday. Uh, I don't know of anyone who gets together every year to celebrate uh, even Albert Einstein's birthday, or Thomas Edison's, or Henry Ford's. I mean, this is in- incredible that, that every year we celebrate Christ's birthday, but it's incredible to see how brief our lives are. This is my favorite thing about... Um, the Oscars or the Academy Awards, and I know it's very, very morbid of me, and I apologize. I apologize for it. But it is my favorite part. Every year, they do a slideshow. You guys know what I'm talking about? They do a slideshow of all the wealthy, famous, beautiful celebrities who, who passed away in the last year. In, in a sense, it's really, it's really sad. But I, I love watching it because, you know, there's this verse in Ecclesiastes where Solomon says, it's better to go to a funeral than to a party. Because when you go to a funeral, it, it reminds you how short your life is and it makes you think about what matters. And it's amazing to me that every year, you know, all the, the famous and the, the beautiful, the most loved people of our day put on their diamonds and their designer gowns, and they all get together. But every year there's this little reminder that they're just a few breaths away from being on the slideshow. I, welcome to my brain. I know, it's morbid. You know, every, every Christmas I rewatch the movie White Christmas because um, my grandma loved it. And, and I always look at, nowadays I look at Bing Crosby and and Rosemary Clooney, and they're just these beautiful, young, healthy people. But, you know, they all aged. Their skin stretched out. Their bones wore out. They had to be walked with walkers. Eventually, they had to have their diapers changed, and then they're gone. They're gone. It's real. Our lives, Scripture says, are like a cloud that passes by. Isaiah says that all of us together, all the nations, we're like grass hoppers compared to God. I've told some of you about the the story of the fire ants in my yard. When Mel and I moved into our house, um, we have natural landscaping, which means we have no landscaping. And when we got there, uh, these fire ants, um, who clearly have 
you know, are indigenous to the area long before uh, Caucasians, at least. They, um, these fire ants have in our neighborhood have these huge, huge anthills. Um, and this one in our backyard, it was probably about this high, about three feet wide. The hole at the top was like, you know, about that big around. And they're just everywhere. And I ignored them for the longest time. But then one day I was out doing some stuff in the yard in my sandals. And those things are cruel. They're mean. Their bite is really bad. If you have them, those big red fire ants. So I decided to declare war on the fire ants. So I went to a hardware store, uh, got this ant killer stuff, and uh, followed all the directions, you know, three parts water, one part, mix it up, spray it on, nothing. Didn't even phase the fire ants. So I went back, and don't tell any environmentalists, I, I bought the concentrate, and I got like three of them, and I did not dilute them, and I just poured it straight down the hole. And there, there were two or three other exit points on the property, and each one got a full bottle. And I, that was like two or three years ago. I've not seen the fire ants since, okay? I conquered the fire ants, all right? They were a little bit of a nuisance, but at the end of the day, they were pretty small compared to you or to me. It's crazy that Isaiah says, we, all the nations together are like grasshoppers. But then to think that a God who's that much bigger in the power scale loves you, cares about you, knows you by name, knows the hairs on your head, knows the cares in your heart knows your weaknesses, and became like you. Not only so that he could save you, but also so that he could relate to you. So that he could be a creator God who knows our frame, knows our limitations. He has become like you. That's what it means that he's the son of man. God so loved the world when we were lost in our darkness that he gave his only son, Jesus, who's fully God, came down among us so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He's kind of the opposite of me with the fire ants, right? He's more like, I'll become an ant, I'll go down and I'll redeem them all so they don't bite each other anymore. I just killed them all. Good thing I'm not God. (laughs) Jesus came to seek you, not because he needs anything from you, but because he chose to love you. Think about this, from eternity past, Jesus was the son of God, okay? This is going to sound like heresy at first, but think through this with me. There was a time when Jesus was not the son of man, this title that he used for himself. Now, now Jesus is eternal. His nature doesn't change as God. He's always fully God. He's the great I am. He's Alpha and Omega. Those things don't change, but could he have been the son of man before man existed? Right? There was a time when he was fully God in the perfection of heaven and there was no humanity, right? There was no man to be a son of. And he is the one. John chapter 1 verse 1 tells us, in the beginning was the word, was him. And the word was with God and the word was God. He's the one, I mean, before galaxies, before trees, before leaves, before day and night, He was fully God. And he is the one who formed some dirt and some dust and some clay and 
breathed into it the breath of life. And Genesis tells us man became a living thing. And then Adam, who he had created, betrays him. Adam, who he had breathed life into, rejected him. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he, Jesus, being fully God, humbled himself, crammed himself down into human form, took upon him the form of a man, and being found as a man, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, to save Adam's kids, to save us. He injects himself into the story. He, he writes himself in as one of the characters. He sets foot on the stage and appears, yes, fully God in nature, but not in all the blinding glory of God. But appears instead as an infant to a peasant son, a son of Adam. So son of man. Luke chapter 3, verse 38, traces Jesus' lineage back, not just to King David, but beyond that, all the way to son of Enosh, son of Seth, the son of Adam. Do you know that in Hebrew, the son of Adam is the exact same thing as the son of man? Because the word Adam means man. In the title, Son of Man, Jesus represents, in a sense, the ideal. And this is where some people get confused. They think, okay, if I just work my whole life to try and be like Jesus. But Jesus says, no, you, you can't get there on your own. You're lost. You need me to save you. But after I save you, Jesus shows us in his life, here's what humans were supposed to be like. If sin had never, you know, if Adam and Eve had never chosen sin and set off that atomic chain reaction of corruption and evil, everything that has come from sin, death, divorce, genocide, war, all that resulted from sin. And in Jesus, we see here's what humanity was supposed to be, strong, but humble, powerful, but loving. This is the way it was supposed to be. And for all who believe in him, he gives the power, the right to become sons of God instead of sons of Adam, but he became one of us. This phrase, son of man, is a very humble phrase. Psalm chapter 8, verse 4 says, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 144, 3 says a similar thing. This son of man is a, a very humble phrase. Uh, I don't know if you've ever met someone who, who kind of leads with how important they are. You know, that they're Dr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so. And, and I, I remember being at a, a party uh, long ago when I lived down in the valley. And there were a couple guys there who together had made a couple million dollars. They thought they were just the biggest deal, right? Uh, but then, you know, there's these other people down there who, those guys were nothing compared to them. But these guys just thought they were such a big deal. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying when you're in grad school that a PhD is like an MD, except that you can't help anyone. And yet, when we work so hard for it, we like, you know, to be called by it. Well, Jesus did the exact opposite. His names include Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, the one in whom all things hold together. 
the King of kings and Lord of lords, the judge of the living and the dead, the one who holds the keys to hell and to Hades and to heaven. And yet, when he walked among us, he would refer to himself by the humblest title possible, Son of Man. Why? To remind us, this is why I came down. To be like you, to be among you, to crawl into the ant hole. Why would the Son of God lower himself? Because he wanted to find you, to seek you, to know you, to save you. The Son of Man came to seek, and the Son of Man came to save. C.S. Lewis put it this way, lying at your feet is your dog. Imagine for the moment that your dog and every dog is in deep distress. Some of us love dogs very much, right? If it would help all the dogs in the world to become like them, would you be willing to become a dog? Would you put down your human nature, leave your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your art and literature, and choose instead of the intimate communion with other people, the poor substitute of looking into a human's face and wagging your tail, unable to smile or speak. Now, not to challenge Lewis, but a dog's life is not that bad, right? I mean, they get to kind of just sleep and eat and get scratched. Well, a dog in America, anyway. But the point is that that is the kind of, of drop that Jesus chose when he chose to become one of us. But, but he didn't live a comfortable life. He chose to be among the least of us to seek out the sickest of us, to touch the lepers, to heal the blind, to eat with the rejects and the outcasts. And he did all that so that he could go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. So my question for you this morning is, have you called out for that rescue? Do you know Jesus as something more than a baby in a manger, than a character in a history book? Do you know him as your savior? And for those of us who do, will we this Christmas season be like Jesus because of him in us? Will we seek and save the lost? Or will we just kind of go through the season living for ourselves? Will we be humble like him who called himself by the lowest name possible to reach those who are lost? Uh, Would you stand and pray together with me? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Lord, our minds cannot comprehend you, and our pride pushes back at that and says, well, then I don't want to believe that there's a God. I don't want to, because we're afraid of what we can't fully understand. But Lord, we see in our lives that we need you. We need a Savior. This world needs you, Lord, so many who are hurting, so many who are literally hungering, so much pain, so much injustice, such an imbalance. Jesus, we thank you that 2,000 years ago, you came down into this world to start setting it right, to redeem it, to recreate it. And you've left your church here in its purest sense to be your hands and feet to fix what's broken here. So Jesus, uh, for all of us here who believe in you today, we celebrate you today. 
we thank you that you became the son of man. You who created man humbled yourself. And Lord, today we just, we just celebrate that. We thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that you took our pain, that you took our penalty. Thank you for that. Thank you that Christmas is so much more, that you are so much more. Lord, if there are any here today who don't yet know you as Savior, I, I just want to give them an opportunity to, to pray along with me, communicating this to you, that God, I, I, I believe Jesus. I, I want you to be my master, just like Zacchaeus did. I want you to be my Lord. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Would you be my Savior? I want to follow you with my life. If that's you, if you've prayed that for the first time from your heart today, God says that you are adopted into the family of God the moment you believe that. And we want to we wanna be your family here. If you'd have us, we want to help you follow Christ. So let us know. We have prayer partners at the front following every service. Anything you need, any prayer, uh, anything you want prayed for, we're here for you. Lord, as we go from here today, would you use us to seek and to save the lost? Would you give us the heart and the mind of Christ that we will humble ourselves to reach those who don't yet know you and use us this Christmas season to seek and to save those who don't know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.